Well, hey, Aaron. Another wonderful week of college sports. How was your week? Uh, I had a good week. I had a really good week. There was a lot going on uh, in the college sports sphere. Yeah. And uh, I'm excited to talk about some of it. Absolutely. Well, so uh, as we have done in the past, first the first segment today we want to talk about kind of follow-up of what happened with the James Wiseman case. We Now the NCAA has issued its penalty and uh, and – and so we know what that's going to be. Yeah. So the NCA said 12 games. He's already served one game, so it's 11 additional games. Mm-hmm. And then $11,500, the money that he got from Penny Hardaway to move, yeah. uh, he has to pay that back to a charity of his choice. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I guess, what do you think about the, about the penalty? Penalty seems fair to me. Um, you know, we knew he was going to get hammered pretty good by taking money from a booster and they didn't, I don't know how well Memphis uh, initially cooperated with the NCA and some of their um, thoughts on eligibility. So sometimes if you do that and you're wrong, it can go against you a little bit. That probably happened here a little bit for Memphis. Uh, and also that's how it normally goes. When, when you're, when a student athlete is repaying money, repaying benefits, the NCA wants it to go to a charity of their choice but they want to see proof, or at least through the school, you have to provide proof and keep it on file at the NCAA audits you. So that means like a receipt of some sort. So it can't just be, yeah, yeah, no problem, I'll take care of it, and then he just doesn't. I mean, he's going to have to pay back that to a specific recognized charity of his choice. It can't just be, oh, yeah, my charity is my cousin, and I'm giving it to my cousin who's going to give it right back to me. It needs to be a recognized charity, you know, Red Cross, something like that. So the question is, okay, so he's a, he's a college student, can't get any money from any boosters, can't get any money from anybody who did, he doesn't have a relationship with. Right. So two questions. First question is, how soon does he have to pay back the $11,500? Does it have to be before the suspension ends? Well, it kind of depends on what they worked out with the NCAA. You know, if, if that was the deal, then then yes. If the NCAA allowed him to go on a payment plan, if, the, if Memphis is eligible to put student athletes on payment plans right now, they haven't blown that, uh, then potentially could go on a payment plan, but he'd have to have that payment plan done by the time he leaves the, the school. If he, if he doesn't and he just leaves the school and never pays it, Memphis can get dinged and not be able to put uh, other student athletes on payment plans down the road. And so you want to be careful with one and dones, putting them on payment plans, unless you're certain they're going to pay that back. And here, I don't know. It's a lot of money. It's a short period of time at Memphis. It's a little risky putting him on a payment plan. So otherwise, yeah, he's going to have to have that money paid off, uh, you know, here in a, few, a couple of weeks or a month or whenever his suspension's up. So, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Does he have the money in the bank? Maybe. Maybe his family does. Um, I'm not sure how he's going to get it, but he couldn't use impermissible means to get that money. Well, one thing I heard talked about uh, and read about uh, is that people have suggested why doesn't he set up some type of a GoFundMe page or something like that? Uh, what do you think about that? Do you think that would be permissible to set up a GoFundMe page? He could be getting donations from anybody, right? Yeah, no, he can't do that because, right, agents are going to be in there, boosters. You're, you're basically a student athlete using her name, image, and likeness asking for extra benefits. Give me money. I'm a student athlete. I need money. So he wouldn't be able to do that. So that would be impermissible. And so no booster can give him the money. No agent can give him the money. Uh, some family friend that hasn't done that before couldn't come in and give him the money. Um, so then you're going to have, you know, other situations like Chase Young, 
where, where some family friend comes in and gives him the money. He pays it off to a charity of his choice. And now, oops, now I've paid P- Peter to rob Paul and I've created this violation now. And those are all really concerning. So uh, if he doesn't have the money and Memphis is allowed to go on payment plan, he's going to have to go on payment plan probably, or he's going to be done for the year and just not come back. Um, but Memphis is going to have to be really careful. If I was in the compliance office or I was the athletic director and somebody's one and done and only has a few months left and it's a lot of money and they don't have any money, I'd be pretty nervous that they're going to not finish that payment plan, burn the school, and then the school's going to be able to put other people on payment plans for, I think, sometimes two or four years, whatever the penalty is. And so that's something they got to watch out for. All right. Well, so we'll continue to follow this. We'll see how quickly he does get back. We know it's going to be at least 12 games. Uh, like yeah. I said, like we said last week, you know, hopefully Memphis makes a good, good deep run. They're a good team, and hopefully yeah. they'll be able to put this behind them once they're once he's once they're back to full strength. Yeah, yeah, it's a distraction though. No matter what, I mean, this just is right. Here's a one and done that you're not getting for a third of your season, right? And so that's like I talked about before. One and dones can be good, but they can be really big liabilities too. This kind of stuff follows them quite a bit. And so I'm not saying he's a bad guy or all one and dones are this way, but they do bring a lot of baggage with them. So you got to think about that if you're an athletic director, administrator. Is it worth having this person come if they have baggage with them? Because this kind of stuff can happen. And now you only have them potentially for two thirds of the year. Maybe, maybe it's one of those situations where he doesn't, can't figure out the money. It's not on a payment plan and he doesn't come back. We don't know. So we'll see if we see him again. Well, hopefully we do. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, uh, on to segment number two here. Uh, so the second segment we're going to be talking about is we're going to be talking about Seton Hall. Yeah. Seton Hall, the uh, who are the – I should know this. I think it's Seton Hall Badgers. The Pirates. The Pirates. Pirates, Pirates at the buzzer. Yeah. Which, which also right? makes no sense. <laughs> I think it was Idaho State Bengals and then Seton Hall Pirates? That's right. Seton Hall Pirates. Okay. Uh, What's and, the connection to Pirates and Seton Hall? What's your guess? You know, there's probably some connection there at some point. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's a strong connection. I get it. Sure. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Seton Hall got dinged this last week and yeah. put on three years probation for transfer tampering. Yeah. yeah. That's the allegation. Yeah. So, here's what we know. So, uh, a former um, uh, assistant coach... Who, by the name of Sheehan Holloway, uh, who's now uh, the head coach at St. Peter's University. Who are the St. Peter's is probably um, the Wranglers, the, the Peacocks. Yeah, Peacocks. The Peacocks. That, that makes Peacocks. no sense either. So, uh, former uh, assistant coach uh, named Sheehan Holloway uh-huh. um, contacted a uh-huh. the mother of a recruit. Okay, so basically, what happened was. This recruit was playing at another university, Syracuse. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh, wasn't super happy there, according to this uh, ESPN article. Um, yeah. He started this co- assistant coach Holloway started contacting his mother, mm-hmm. and in between, for a period of about eight to ten months, there was two hundred and forty-three impermissible contacts with the recruit as he was at C- as Syracuse. And he didn't have permission to contact the mother. Yeah, the mother of this recruit. Yeah. Then the recruit goes into the transfer portal or wants to transfer, and after he does that, then there's 87 contacts between the mother and this assistant coach. And so the NCA looked at that and said, "Nope, can't do that. 
Uh, and here's the penalty. What they did was they, they put Seton Hall on probation for three years, took away a scholarship for the 2021-2021 uh, academic year, and limited recruiting for each of the next two seasons as part of the negotiated uh, resolution for this transfer tam tampering mm -hmm. issue. So that's the allegation. That's what we know. Yeah. So the qu first question is, what did this assistant coach do that was wrong? I mean, he says he contacted the mother. They had this relationship before. Uh, they It was outside of basketball, but there were, you know, well over 300, 400 contacts between these two individuals. So first question, what did he do wrong? Well, what he should have done, obviously, is get with compliance on the you know, pre-existing relationship test. We talked about this, I think, in a few weeks back about really outlining, does this person really have a pre-existing relationship with this mother? You know, did the relationship start before the prospect was in ninth grade? Is their relationship the same kind of type it was before? Is it based any on anything on her son's athletic ability or playing basketball? But if not, and it was usually one, he should have documented that for this reason. So then he, when he later gets accused of something, he can say, oh, no, I went to compliance. Feel free to talk to the compliance office. They've mapped it all out. I'm fine. He didn't do that. So then if he said, no, 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 I have a pre-existing relationship. Well, you know, compliance, it doesn't sound like at least the compliance knew about it or did any analysis because they haven't came forward and said that. Um, so that's problem number one. Number two, even if you have a pre-existing relationship, it can't be about recruiting, the recruiting nature. And they need to be talking about baking pies and traveling and life, other things. They're talking about her son transferring. It's recruiting in nature. That pre-existing relationship gets trumped by your recruiting now. You're actually recruiting. So that's not. it's not like a, a carve-out where, oh, you have a pre-existing relationship with a bunch of people, so now you can just impermissibly recruit them. That's not what it's for. It's so he could have these conversations if it was truly about other things. It doesn't sound like it was. I don't know for sure. I, mean, I haven't read the phone calls or the text messages or listen to them, but it sounds like it was recruiting in nature. Well, but but what if, you know, to play devil's advocate here a little bit, um, he was just contacting the mother. He wasn't contacting the recruit himself. Well, yeah. Right. Yeah. So so what's wrong with that? Well, students and their parents, their parents are always an extension of a student. It's true for extra benefits. It's true for recruiting calls, text messages. The parents are an extension. So sometimes people confuse that in the NCAA rules. Well, the mother and the father was the one taking the benefit. It wasn't the kid. Yeah, but even if the kid didn't know, even if the kid didn't know, it doesn't matter. that the, the NCAA treats the parents as an extension of the kid. So impermissible contacts to the parent are just like having impermissible contacts with the kid. A recruiting contact with the parent is burns a recruiting contact with the kid. And so that's just how it goes. And so that wouldn't matter. Okay. Uh, and so, so, oh, and I forgot to, to, to also mention that there were suspensions for both the head coach yeah. who didn't make any of these contacts. Under head coach responsibility. That's something in the last few years the NCAA has put out there, that, that head coaches are basically responsible for their whole staff. What ended up happening a lot of times is coaches would get out of things by saying, oh, I don't really know what they're doing. I'm the CEO of my program. I'm really busy. I'm with the media. I'm coaching. I don't know what my assistant coach is doing. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. They bury their head in the sand. And so he said, no, we're not having that anymore. If you're the head coach, you're responsible whether you knew or didn't know. You're going to be charged with responsibility for your whole program. So if violations are happening with your within your staff, and even if you don't didn't know about it and didn't direct them at all, you're responsible. And that's what's happening here. 
So the head coach is responsible uh, just because it was his program. So he got named two games. Yeah. And then the now current coach of the St. Peter's or St. Peter's University Fighting Peacocks, yeah. as you recall. Yeah, of course. Uh, he got four games. Yeah. On top of that, Seton Hall also got fined 5000 bucks, plus 1% of men's basketball budget and had his scholarship reduced like we talked about. Yeah, it's pretty significant, to be honest. If you think about it, they're sitting out games, missing games. Fans are coming. You're not there. You're not coaching. Budget's getting impacted. That is significant for one relatively minor recruiting violation, actually. It's not minor in the sense in the NCAA's eyes, but this is one kid, right? And this is what can happen. What do you think about the, the penalty? Do you think the penalty seems fair? I think it seems fair. It seems right in line with head coach responsibility, impermissible contact, impermissible recruiting. You're impermissibly recruiting. NCAA protects recruiting really, really closely because it's competitive advantage. It's really where people would want to cheat is within recruiting. So the NCAA wants to keep that really fair, really clear. If you don't have the right to, to contact somebody, you can't contact them. This is kind of, oh, I had a pre-existing relationship. Well, why is it not documented with the compliance office? And, and why were you talking recruiting? It should have been talking about something else. It was truly a pre-existing relationship. And surprise, surprise, the kid ended up going to your school. Right. So, you know what I mean? So I'm not trying to say anything bad about Seton Hall. It doesn't look good. It just doesn't. And they're going to get dinged, and they'll learn from it, and they'll move on. All right. So, uh, so far, I feel like everything's going pretty well, don't you think? I think absolutely. We're trying to add yeah. some music. Yeah. And we're making it a little bit more professional. Yeah. Intro, outro. Is that the word? Outro, yeah. Outro. Lead out, lead outs, lead ins. Lead ins, lead outs. It's all part of our, we're building, right? Uh, first, we, we filmed this, I think, on like uh, some sort of random camera that looked about from the 60s, you know? And so then we got an HD for you. And then we've added graphics. Uh, thank you, Randy. Uh, Randy does our graphics and editing. Um, a little shout out to Randy. And then, uh, yeah, now we're adding intros and outros. And I see, Spencer, you're wearing uh, the, the Sun Devils. You, you got the, not, the, not the Arizona Sun State Devils. Sun Devils. That's right? not right. No, no. This is the University of, San Diego, University of California, San Diego Tritons. Tritons. Yeah, this okay. is, this is a, I collect college t-shirts, as you know. And you know every mascot of the D1 team. I is do. that right? Oh, that's right. So, <laughs> so here's, my, here's my University of California at San Diego. Sure, which I purchased at the bookstore. I like it. At UCSD. Okay. Would you admit that it, it's in the same vein? It's the Arizona same vein, State. but it's a little bit different. Okay. It's a little bit different. Okay. You can see it there. Is there going to be a lawsuit brewing between No, no, there won't be. Okay, that's good. All right. Well, we wanted to next talk about that. This was something that happened this week or last week, last Saturday. Yeah. Uh, and it would been it, it, it got me curious. Mm -hmm. uh, so Tua Tonga Vailoa uh, had, had, you know, the – QB1 at Alabama, top five team in the nation, uh, is playing in a game. The game is out of hand already. It's in the second quarter, end of the yeah. second quarter. Yeah. And he goes to roll out and gets tackled and ends up dislocating his hip. Yeah. Severe, potentially career-ending injury. Hopefully it's not. It sounds like he had successful surgery. Yeah. Hurts like a Bo Jackson injury? Potentially. You know, potentially a Bo Jackson type injury. Now, Anyways, that, that gets into a little bit of a different issue yeah. medically. But, yeah. um, but so so he's injured, and he's out for the rest of the season. Now, he was a junior, but he was planning on yeah. coming out this year and was probably going to be a first-round high-end draft pick, yeah. maybe even the first quarterback chosen. Yeah. So the question popped into my mind, Aaron, what does with – these, with these high-profile athletes, 
they have these career-ending injuries. This guy was potentially, and hopefully he will still, but potentially this guy was going to go out and make millions of dollars as a quarterback in the NFL. And now that's a little bit in jeopardy. So what responsibilities does the school have towards the athlete? And then what, what, what avenues does the athlete have to actually pay for all this medical treatment? So, so my first question is, he gets hurt playing football at Alabama. Who pays for it? Yeah, so it's, it's different in the sense that when you think about an employee at work that gets hurt and they fall under the workers' compensation system, student-athletes are not employees. And so the NCAA does require that all student-athletes have health insurance. So it could be provided by the school, could be provided by themselves or their parents. They have to have health insurance. And that's what primarily pays. So 99 times out of 100, what ends up happening is they go on their parents' policy. And so their parents' Kaiser health insurance or whatever it is pays. And so if a student athlete is hurt playing the sport, it's no different as if they just got, you know, fell down some steps at the school. Go to the doctor. I tore my ACL falling down some steps. I don't even know if that mechanism makes sense, but you know what I mean. And, and uh, it's the same idea. And you think that seems odd, right? Because they're benefiting the school, but they're not employees. And so, yeah, so their health insurance picks up for it and pays for life. And the school's sort of just off the hook. Unless somehow the school is negligent or contributed to it, then maybe they'll, they'll pick it up or, or take care of it. Now, a lot of times team doctors will take care of some of this stuff. Um, oftentimes, though, it's not. It's not. Oftentimes, it's just at the hospital and the school. Student athlete goes to have surgery and it's paid for by their private health insurance. And so Tua had to have private health insurance to be playing. And so his private health insurance is going to have to pay for the treatment uh, to get him better. Uh, unfortunately, that's just how it is. I bet you Alabama probably is not paying for any of it. Well, okay. So that, that makes sense to me. But yeah. I guess the next question, the follow-up question to that is, what happens to him as an individual yeah. now that potentially he's out millions and millions of dollars, assuming – you know, if he cannot get back and play in the NFL. Yeah. So are there are there avenues or there are there possibilities for him as now an injured, you know, collegiate football player? Yeah. What what can he do or what can those types of college athletes do? Yeah, so the NCAA allows sort of elite or high level athletes, you know, they can they can purchase premiums or make loans. It's basically purchasing a an insurance policy against their draft stock, draft position, potential potential future earnings. It's complicated, um, and we want to be careful as a, a school of endorsing or recommending or really facilitating that. We can just give the information to the high-profile student-athletes. You know, we can pay the premium. If, if there's a few select elite athletes, the school can pay for some of the premiums of, of that under maybe like the student-athlete opportunity fund or some of that. So, you know, because it usually it's like $8,000 per million dollars of coverage. Uh, a lot of the coverage are up to like $10 million. And so you can imagine it costs thousands of dollars for this premium. Schools can't afford to pay all of that for all of these students that want it. But it's really only appropriate for first and second round NFL or first round NBA players, really, or, or maybe first or second round baseball players to get this sort of coverage anyways. It's so expensive. Then it's hard. It's kind of unregulated right now. It's hard for them to pay out because they, they get caught up on these nuances. Well, how do we know you were really going to go fourth? What if you were going to go second round or third round? You had those two interceptions last game. It's hard to say. Or illness. Is this the right type of illness or this injury that you had? Is it career ending? Is it really, you know, career ending? Did it really impact your draft stock? Did it not? It, it's hard to say. 
And so what happens is they're really kind of sexy policies to have. The kids want them. They want to say, yeah, I'm insured to $10 million. If I get injured, I'm a big-time player. That sounds cool. It sounds sexy. But when the time comes to actually file that claim and collect on it, it's not as easy. And oftentimes they're not paid out. There's big fights and the whole thing. So that's what the student athletes run into. So they have these policies that are unregulated and oftentimes they'll pay out. So, okay, but that's for the high profile. Yeah. What about, what about like, you know, the third string quarterback at Akron or, or, or the beach volleyball player at USC? I mean, you know, these, these, these collegiate athletes who are not going to go out probably yeah. make millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> Can those types of athletes get insurance policies? Often not, because you think about it, it'd be like, you know, maybe like a famous actress could insure her face from scar. But maybe you or I just couldn't do it. We try to go get that policy and they'd say, no, I'm not paying you 10 million bucks to get a scar. I mean, because I probably could. You, I don't yeah, you. yeah, absolutely. You could. 30, 40 million. <laughs> Where me, I'd get 40 bucks, you know, but, but here's, I mean, that's the reality of it, right? I mean, the, Nobody wants to insure them because they think you don't have any possibility of, of – it doesn't make any sense for us to insure you, right? I mean, you're kind, of, you're kind of really just throwing your own money away. Anyways, if you were able to secure that policy, because how would you ever prove that you, have, you were going to make $10 million a year? How would you prove that? How, how would that ever come about if your draft analysis is eighth round, you know, maybe, you know? And so generally speaking, it's just for those elite athletes to get career-ending injuries, the two of the world. Um, that should have it, need to have it, but don't overthink it. As Nick Saban used to say uh, about the insurance, have it, it's important, but it's like getting struck by lightning. Don't overcook it, is what he used to say. What that means is like having insurance for your lead athlete, your, your, your round one, round two football player, have insurance, but don't overthink it because you're probably not going to have a career-ending injury. It, it's one in a million, or you know, it's one in 10,000 that that actually happens to. These are healthy young men, 18 to 22, 23, uh, that have injuries, but they're usually not career-ending injuries. But if you do happen to have a career-ending injury, when they're red, then, yeah, you want that insurance there, but you're going to be in a dogfight with those guys. They're not going to just easily pay you out $10 million. But, yeah, you're going to be number one. I don't know. They say, well, too, I don't know if you're going to be number one. Maybe you're going to be 20th, 25th, and that could be the difference of millions of dollars. So you're being in a dogfight. You might have to hire lawyers. And you as an institution want to be careful endorsing, hey, talk to this person. Those those uh, agents, those insurance agents, want to get inroads really bad with, with compliance offices to have them steer student athletes to them to get business. You got to be really careful as a compliance office doing that because you can then get tacked. You recommended it. You were kind of facilitating it. And if there's a lawsuit down the road because they're not paying out, they can kind of probably name you in it too that you helped steer them. You were involved. So you got to be really careful. Just say, here's some information. You can go with this person. We've worked with them before. You can go to anybody else. Your choice. We're not signing the paperwork for you. We're just letting you know this insurance is available, and it's probably a good idea to have it okay. and explore your options. Got it. All right. Well, that's pretty good. Yeah. Those are those are those are good options at least. And, yeah. And, and so it's not they're not completely out of all of that money, but it's hard to get them to pay out. It is. Yeah. All right. So, well, Spencer, I think that means we have a call. I think that means we have a call. That's right. Is, so, is this our first call? This is our first call ever. Okay. okay. So, this is going to be kind of exciting. But yeah. let's lead into it a little bit. Yeah. Here yeah. We... yeah. So, the question so, we talked about, we've talked a lot about athletes in football, man, you know, men's basketball, men's football. Yeah. Those are the big time athletes. Those are the schools that get dinged. 
But you can't forget, as a member of the compliance community, that you also have dozens of other sports, Olympic sports, they call them, at these universities that also go through uh, compliance issues, right? Yeah, well, you know what's funny is, like, USC included, football and basketball are the gateway sports, but when the NCAA comes knocking and they dig into your books, they look at all your sports. And then oftentimes, uh, you know, tennis got implicated uh, with USC before and, and other sports. And so what can happen is they can come in and say, oh, football's got a problem. We're coming in, we're opening the books. Oh, we found out a soccer problem and a swimming problem, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, NCAA rules cover swimming no different than men's football or basketball. It's just the same, same rules, same problems. So those sports can cause majors for programs no different than football or basketball. Just football or basketball tends to get more of the press. But in the NCAA's eyes, all the sports are treated the same and equal. And trust me, when they start digging into the books, uh, it's, it works both ways. You can, you can let a crack in in swimming and expose your football and basketball. Or you can let a little football basketball crack come in and expose your other sports. So, okay, so when you were at USC and Oregon State, how often were you having meetings with these other Olympic sports? Well, it was totally different because USC, we had three people in compliance. And at, at USC, we had about 11. So at Oregon State, you had three. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Oregon State, we had three. USC, we had about 11. And so we could meet a lot more frequently. And so what happened is um, usually monthly, we would have a monthly meeting at USC with these sports. Um, you know, with USC and football and basketball, when I was working with football, we would meet with the student athletes once a week or once every two weeks. I mean, they had my cell phone. I knew who they were. They knew who I, I was. And basically, um, we were almost like friends, you know, because I wanted them calling me or texting me at all hours whenever something happened. And so I was in front of them all the time. They would stop in our office. They knew who we were. We'd give stipend checks out once a month. And so because of that, uh, I would say that I probably had interactions with football once a week, once every two weeks. The other sports probably once a month, a couple times a semester. But it was, it was enough, a lot. And Oregon State, it was a little bit less because we had less staff. And so it might only be once or twice a semester. But you want to get in front of them, in my opinion, at least once or twice a semester. All right. So one of the thoughts we had as we were talking about this uh, this topic was to call a former collegiate athlete yeah. and get them on the phone and have them talk about their experience with compliance. Yeah. Now, I just so happen to have a little brother of mine, uh, Daniel Kelly, who was a who was a swimmer at BYU, yeah. uh, Brigham Young University. The Cougars. The Cougars. Cougars. And then that makes sense that they're the Cougars. Right. The mountain mountain line. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So we have Daniel Kelly on the phone. Hi, Daniel. Can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you just fine. How about myself? We can hear you all right. We'll see how it comes across on the actual podcast, but you sound good. You sound good right now. Sounds really good. It sounds regal. So, Daniel, why don't you give us a little background? Um, What did you... Uh, what did you do at BYU uh, collegiately, athletically? Uh, you know, how long were you there, and and um, what did you swim? Yeah, great. I so I swam at BYU starting in the 2011 season, uh, and then I was uh, on a mission for two years, and then I came back and, and swam a little bit more. Uh, and I was a, a backstroker and a butterflyer. My best event was the 200 backstroke. Um, and I only swam butterfly twice a year when I was when I was rested, or as they say in the swimming world, tapered. Okay. Tapered. Okay. Okay. So, uh, how many people 
were on the swim team? So we had a swim and dive team at BYU. Uh, and so in total, there were about 63, uh, 64 athletes, depending on the year. Uh, each swim team had, the, the men's swim team had about 24 swimmers and about six divers. And the women's uh, team had 35 in total. Okay. Okay. So um, as you heard us and, and as we were talking in the intro here, we were talking specifically about uh, college athletes and compliance. So from your time at BYU, um, how long, how many, how often would you have meetings with compliance, uh, with the compliance officers at your school? So swimming uh, is broken up into basically two seasons. There's short course, which is the collegiate uh, season, and then there's long course season. Um, and we would have meetings probably twice a year, or three times a year, twice during the actual college season, and then once right before long course season. And from, from what you recall, uh, what were those meetings like? Uh, what kind of information did they share with you? Um, it was, uh, to be honest, it was kind of a boring meeting. <laughs> they, uh, they, they talked about different, different sort of things about what we can and can't do uh, in the swimming world. I, I remember uh, for one, one thing in particular that we couldn't use, we couldn't do swim lessons, uh, or we couldn't use the pool to teach other people, even even friends or family, we couldn't use the, the pool to, to do that. Uh, and yeah, we, we couldn't talk with high school prospects unless they were recruits and they were coming onto campus and then, and then we were given permission to do that. Does that sound like what you would do at USC and Oregon State? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I'm curious if Daniel could take a guess as to why he wouldn't be able to use the pool. Why do you think that would be the rule? Um, I, I think it was because we couldn't, uh, specifically for doing lessons uh, for money, you can't, we were told that you can't use your likeness as a, as a BYU athlete to to money and uh, in the Utah community BYU swimming was very well respected and so I could charge more than I would have uh, if I weren't a, a BYU athlete to, to use the pool um, and then even just not using not getting paid but just giving lessons using the pool it it kind of made it so that my understanding was that it kind of enticed people to attend BYU and was like an added perk, especially for high school students or or anyone to use the pool as a BYU athlete in, in that way. Yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, yeah, it implicates a lot, right? I mean, there's liability from a legal perspective if you're bringing people on and, is it, you know, could, could you be sued or could the school be sued if somebody drowns or is hurt? Uh, is it an extra benefit for you to use a pool? You don't have to rent it. You know, you're getting it sort of free or normally if you were teaching lessons, maybe you'd have to rent the space to run your camp, you know, name, image and likeness is implicated. So there's quite a few of these rules you can see that kind of snarl together and you can see why it's important for student athletes to know some of them because they're not necessarily generally 
understood or, or common sense. You know, right. you, it's easy for student athletes to say, yeah, of course I use the pool. I, I get the keys to the place. I'm going to use it. And then yeah. problems happen. All of a sudden they're not eligible for a match or something. And they think I didn't know, you know, and, and so that's why it's, that's why you want to get in front of the student athletes on a regular basis. If you can about how long would these meetings take? Uh, about an hour, uh, maybe an hour and a half, not, not super long. Yeah. Yeah, we had something at USC uh, where we did micro bursts with football. So we did once a week, once every two weeks, 10 minutes. And so we thought attention spans are short. Um, let's let's hit on two or three topics that are timely and get out of there. And But then football was on board with letting us, when they had their team meeting once every two weeks, get in front, short, bang, 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 we're out. And we would just do that frequently and we were out. And then we would document our files that we've been talking with student athletes about these different topics. So everybody does it differently. At Oregon State, we weren't able to do that. We just had to get in front of them a couple of times and really just barf out a bunch of stuff because we were not going to get in front of them again for four more months. USC, we could have every two weeks. We, we had it all broke up by sports. There were so many of us we could do that. So different styles on how to do that. Uh, preference, I, I would imagine, if, if a student athlete had more frequent meetings but only 10 minutes or eight minutes, they might prefer that. I don't know for sure. I'd be curious to know what Daniel would think of that. Yeah, I think that would that would probably be good just right before we get into practice for um, get in the pool for practice, just a kind of a reminder of what yeah. we can and can't do and yeah. um, off to the races again. Yeah, exactly. Just like something timely, like, hey, this is coming up, just remember guys, bang, 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 or hey, we have a bunch of recruits coming this weekend, just remember bang, bang, bang. Something like that. Would you, uh, Danny, when you were at BYU, would you like host recruits or would you would you participate in anything like that? Yeah, I did that a time or two uh, to host recruits when they came in. And what was that experience like? Uh, it was a lot of fun. We had a schedule, uh, and they had meetings with uh, the BYU athletic department and then also with the coaches. So I was ma mainly a chaperone, uh, and, but I was told where to go and where to go eat and um, that the school was handling that that part of the finances as far as we we uh, we could take the recruit out to dinner with the coaches and and I got to eat for free that that one night. Not too bad. Yeah, so we're gonna have to turn in BYU for a violation. No, I'm just kidding. No, that's true. So so student athletes is the host. The NCAA is carved out where they can get host money for just that purpose. They can if they go to a team meal, it doesn't have to come out of the host money. They can just have a meal for free and the student athlete can, but if they have entertainment money that you probably were given that, maybe you weren't, but host, yeah, yeah, you know, was. okay. Yeah. You can get, so I think $40 or something like that and you get it and you can go take them to a movie or, or, you know, go to get a snack somewhere, do something. We always tell the student athletes, they're not allowed to just give the cash to the recruit. You know, I think a lot of the times that's what the recruit wants. They can't do that, but you can take them out and entertain them. That was the point of the money. Got it. Well, most most weekends we would go to the BYU football game. Yeah. We would get refreshments for them with that money. Yeah. And then after the game, we would go somewhere fun with the team and we yeah. pay for yeah. their ticket and our ticket. Like, yeah. like a, you get like a cougar tail. Aaron, you've had a, a cougar tail. Oh, man, I've had a cougar tail. Uh, I don't know if those are like $200, so I don't know how much those cost, but they were really worth it. Uh, but they were super good. It's like nine donuts in one. Uh, I think I gained 15 pounds on the trip. Um, but but I can see why a recruit would go have a cougar tail and then go hang out with everybody and think, I love this place. I love the football team. I love the mountains in the back. 
I like the blue. I like the white. Uh, the donut sold the deal, and I'm going. I'm signing. I'm signing for BYU. That sounds good. And then Daniel, after you finished swimming for BYU, then you uh, you were a student manager for a little while, right? That's correct. Was there any change between when you were a swimmer versus when you were a student athlete or a student manager, as far as uh, dealing with compliance or working with compliance or anything like that? Did you have any? Uh, added requirements or different requirements? Yeah, because I was a manager and not like a coach, I couldn't, I couldn't give coaching advice to the to the swimmers because they couldn't. Uh, there's only so many hours that you can coach a swimmer, uh, and only so many coaches that can touch a swimmer or, or like give advice. And so, uh, technically, I, I wasn't allowed to give any advice. I was just there to manage equipment and food and trips and things like that. Um, so that, that was a little different. As a swimmer, you could give advice to other swimmers. Yeah. Um, that was not a problem. Uh, but as a manager, I couldn't assume that role. Sounds like there's a lot of those types of nuances, especially with Olympic sports, right, Aaron? Yeah, yeah. In, in all sports. I mean, football had the same rule. We had to go over when I was at football. Managers couldn't coach. They couldn't call, you know, signal in plays. Um, so there's, there's rules for all sports. They're actually kind of similar, just sort of changed a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, you know, that's exactly right. You can't have just tons of coaches. Then you'd have all these former swimmers be deemed managers. They're all coaching. And now that swim team has 55 coaches, right? And you're going to have a huge advantage to have that one-on-one -on -one coaching with everybody. So the NCAA says, no, we can't do that. But you know, there's certain things you can do, help with equipment, distribute equipment, uh, be kind of a little bit of a gopher sort of for a coach, that sort of thing. You can talk to the coaches behind closed doors where athletes aren't around, talk strategy, but you can't be barking out coaching stuff when you're out. There's going to be an extra coach. It's going to be an accountable coach issue, and that's a pretty stiff violation. That's why you want to get in front of your managers on a regular basis, have them sign an attestation that they understand the rules, what they can and can't do. Maybe have a designation of your whole staff. These are the coaches. These are the student managers. Who's doing what? Make sure everybody knows what they can and can't do. So did you have a separate meeting with compliance, Daniel, or were you were you just included in the original, in the regular meetings? Um, I was included in the regular meetings, but those were more geared towards uh, the athletes and nothing on, on student managers or that role. Or, uh, but I, I remember having a meeting with the head coach and having me sign a, sign a document that said that I understood what my role was and uh, that I should have uh, step outside of it. Are, those, are those type of letters or require contracts required by the NCAA? <laughs> so they're not required, but what can happen is you need that documentation because if something goes sideways, you want to minimize the damage, you want to mitigate it. If you have that rules ed documented with that student manager and they signed an attestation and then went rogue, you can minimize it. But if you didn't have that attestation or the student athlete says, I didn't know, or the, the student manager, nobody told me, no one sat with me, then you can kind of pin it on the head coach. Like, head coach, you aren't doing enough to foster compliance within your program. We're going to hit you with head coach responsibility. Hey, compliance, you need to be educating. You need to be doing this and that. So you want those attestations. We'd recommend having those attestations. If anybody wants to email us and get advice on how to draft those attestations, we'd be happy to give some examples of what those should look like. But you should have a staff designation. This says who your coaches are. If, you, if you're able to have a volunteer coach, list the volunteer coach. Who are your managers? Who's your video staff? Who's your equipment staff? Everybody that's touching your program is a volunteer, an intern, a paid staff member, anything. You want them designated, educated, and have each of them signing a testation on what they can and can't do 
they've signed it and keep it on file should the NCAA come knocking. That's great. Well, Daniel, uh, to end our conversation here, I guess Aaron and I were curious uh, if you could kind of share your uh, your thoughts about the benefits you received as 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 being a member of uh, the BYU swim team and and you know swimming in college and and how that has helped you and affected your life. Yeah, uh, when uh, growing up swimming, I, I swam in Spencer, my uh, our hometown of Vancouver, Washington, and uh, the the swim team that I swam for, I, I was the fastest swimmer there. And then when I went and came to BYU, I realized that really I wasn't I wasn't that fast. Uh, but it was it was a really cool environment to be able to swim with all these swimmers that were right at my level, uh, and we could push each other. And there's a type of camaraderie that you develop when you're in a pool for uh, and working out together for about 20 hours every every week. Thank you very much, Daniel. We really appreciate your time. I hope you have a great, great night. And, uh, and tell Jamie and Lucy hi for us. Okay, we'll do. All right. Bye. See you, Daniel. See ya. All right. Well, it's been another great show. Really good show. I, I thought Daniel had some great insights, you know, and, and provided some of the uh, listeners with what it's like to be a D1 student athlete and wear a couple of different roles. He's a swimmer, he's a student manager, and, and how the rules are implicated differently. He had a great grasp of the rules, if you noticed. He mentioned 20 hours, in-seasons, 20 hours of care is maximum. You know, he can't coach as a student uh, manager. Uh, some of the rules with hosting an official visit. Right. So he had a great understanding. It looks like BYU is doing a good job. They get in front of their student athletes, at least their swimmers, a couple times a semester, a couple times a year at least. And uh, that's the point of compliance, to prevent missteps through rules education. All right. Well, we've got our uh, our uh, at the end of each show. We always talk yeah. about the upcoming games. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Who does USC have this weekend? USC has a huge one. I got here. You can see the USC helmet, and then you'll see the the UCLA helmet. It's very small. Uh, they're in a huge football rivalry. Um, you know, UCLA won last year. Clay Helms and Ben. His job security has been swirling around. Uh, they got a big game and then a bye week. Uh, but what makes this game unique is if USC's favored by about two touchdowns. I think they're going to win. USC's got their back to the wall. There's a lot of pressure on Clay Helton. They're at home. They usually play UCLA really well at home. I wouldn't be surprised if they won by 14, 21, put them away, uh, maybe 24. Uh, but, then, but then what happens then, right? They have a bye week. What that's going to do is force Utah, even if Utah wins this weekend against Arizona, which I think they will, it's going to force Utah next week to play Colorado and win. For some reason, Utah slipped up and lost that game. USC would meet Oregon in the Pac-12 championship. But if Utah goes to next week and wins, it'll be Utah and Oregon in the Pac-12 championship. So it's not decided yet. It probably won't be decided until the final week of the season. All right. um, so I think it's going to be a big one. It's a big one for Clay Helton. A lot of people are going to be watching. It's a 1230 on ABC. So I recommend tuning in. It's going to be a good game for a lot of reasons, from the future of the program, for coaching, for the city of LA. All right. And then my BYU Cougars, we've got the mighty uh, UMass yeah. 
UMass, uh, I think it's got to be some sort of a English character. Uh, the Minutemen. Yeah, sure. Pretty good. Sure. Minute. Yeah, that makes sense. So, uh, and uh, they're 40, BYU's 40 point favorites. I predict BYU will win, but not cover. So I think BYU will win, but by less than 40 points. Okay. Okay. Yeah, uh, and this is not their last game. This, this is not their last. We play next week. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but um, but uh, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Any other games you're keeping an eye on? Well, the, the state versus state. Penn State versus Ohio State. Uh, that's a huge one, right? Um, Chase Young coming back. Chase Young coming back. Uh, playoff implications, national championships on the line, game day. I mean, that, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. I think Ohio State comes out on top. I think Ohio State right now just looks unstoppable, uh, really. Um, the LSU is the other one that I think is really, really strong. I would like to see LSU and Ohio State in the national championship. I think those are the best two teams, best offenses. And really the best talent in the country. And it's, that's going to be hard to say what happens there. But uh, I think Ohio State's going to beat Penn State. Could win by 14 or 17. I think they're going to pull away from them. Penn State's good. Uh, but I think Penn State's a 10-2 and two team. And they belong to maybe like the Peach Bowl or something like that. All right. Well, we'll see what happens this week. And uh, and next week in college sports. We got, an, we got an exciting episode next week, too. We do. We got the Thanksgiving sweatpants edition special. Yeah, all right. Let's get to it. All right. All right. Enjoy your weekend, college sports fans. See you guys.